The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney Kane. Hey, Susan. Nice to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for, for joining us. We appreciate it. Ah, so cool. it's, nice, it's really great to uh, meet you, Dr. Rodney King. Um, it's, you know, a pleasure to know that you're doing as much as you are in the world to connect. I think uh, those of us in the health professions that really care about nature and understand this idea of one health. Mm. So um, I was really delighted that you uh, reached out. And I know you've been going through a lot of your own personal journey. So I can appreciate that too. And I know yeah. your partner has been as well, right? Yeah, it's just it's one of those things, right? You know, when life throws you curveballs, it throws you really hard ones. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm I'm doing good, but I'm happy that you you you're with us. And uh, obviously I've been following what you've been doing um, on LinkedIn. It's great for that, right? So that we yeah. can actually see everybody's body of work and what they're interested in. Yeah. And uh, what I try to do, like always when we start this, um, I kind of wrote this little thing, like almost like a positioning statement. I've, I've started to refine it as we've gone through the, the episodes, because I say this to, to everybody, you know, when we, when we chat to them, when, when myself and Frank had this idea of this, this podcast, the show, it was really just about talking to people who had insight into what we call the human animal predicament. Right. right. And uh, we really wanted to kind of glean people's knowledge and understand their perspectives and where they're coming from. Ultimately, I guess it for us, it's a bit selfish. Like we want to learn. Right. <laughs> and so, of course, we don't know everything. And there are many people out there with great ideas and perspectives. And so this is one way that we can actually get to connect with people and hear their their position. Right. And, and how they see things. But to get it started. Let me read this to you, Susan, and you tell me what is your feelings? Like, what is it? What is it? What does it bring up for you? Right. So let, let me let me get this in front of me because I don't want to make any make, make any mistakes. So here it goes. The challenge we confront isn't so much about individual adaptation, but rather a prevailing system of living that demands a simulation to an approach that's inherently detrimental, not just for us, but all of life on earth. Tragically, we find ourselves ensnared in a relentless cycle, coerced into embracing a lifestyle that champions unchecked greed, insatiable materialism, unfettered competition, and rampant consumerism. All the while, we sold the illusion that adhering to this dominant worldview guarantees happiness. Mm. Yeah, that's so lovely, uh, Dr. Rodney King. I think that that statement, uh, when I first read it, I think that you have it embedded within one of your websites or LinkedIn or something. I do. Mm. Yeah, and, um, you know, I'm Quaker, 
just so that you know. And um, I do believe this idea that uh, all the way back to colonialism, when um, there was this concept that was very much embedded in this idea of eugenics, that there is a way that humanity um, must push forward, that there are certain people that are in the know and that must, you know, make everyone else conform. Um, and you can see throughout history, although I was a microbiology major undergrad, I've studied public health and medicine. So not a ton of history, but then I've since gone back and you can see how waves and waves and waves of people have pushed this idea on everyone on the planet. And it's the idea that um, one view is right and everyone else's view isn't. So whereas there were indigenous people all over the world living in harmony and balance with nature, um, they were called uncivilized, right? But now that we're going back and looking at the ways in which they did um, balance humanity and, and live like, you know, even building their own uh, creations out of organic material that, you know, when they left it, it would just be this lovely hillside, but it was really, you know, human waste, you know, <laughs> um, like why, why was that view not um, seen as important and healthy and uh, dominant? And it's because mankind is an animal by nature and mankind has all the way down in the deep part of our nervous system, a chicken brain or an emu brain, whichever you want to believe. And I now have emus. I've had chickens for many years and uh, we have that deep inside our brain. So we, we think about, well, that's where war comes from. And that's where really the basic instinctual greed comes from. And it's not the higher level human brain that we've evolved because that's more enlightened. It's the basic, very primitive drives that really does drive war and destruction and cause people to, you know, go out and just take over all these lands all over the world saying that was theirs. Mm. And I can show you down in my chicken coop, how that works. You know, uh, it works at the level of roosters and hens that have a pecking order. This is mm. nothing new, you know, it goes evolutionarily way, way back, but it's not higher order thinking. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So to build off that, would you say then whatever we define as this higher order thinking in some ways it's been used or manipulated to drive that kind of primitive destructive instinct right because on the surface we get sold this narrative oh look look at our technology look how far we have come we've evolved so much but as you say below the surface we are still these animals. That's one of the reasons why we decided to call the show the human animal show. Right. So it's interesting that I guess 
there are a group of people and individuals throughout history that have used a higher order thinking, done it, you know, use it in uh, maybe indirectly, but definitely have used it to gain their own whatever they need, right? Their own perspective, and then applied that in bolstering and infusing this kind of primitive nature of people to their own benefit. Yeah. So so let's just be clear. This isn't higher or higher higher ordered thinking. Let's go back. Hmm. Um, it starts with a very primitive drive. And the primitive drive being um sort of food, clothing, and shelter oriented. Um, the land that people took, you know, the wars that they fought, these were not higher order. But what happened is in this human animal, there had evolved the neocortex, this, you know, um, cortex that's even beyond, let's say, what monkeys and all that have. Well, that allowed those people who had very deep rooted primitive drives mm. to have more land, to have more conquest, to rape, pillage and burn all over the world, um, to build bigger factories, to have, you know, more stuff. Um, what happened was that kind of primitive drive then drove economies and it drove people who might have you know, a different way of looking at things, which I call higher order mm. to be suppressed and um, oppressed and um, kind of disengaged from this, you know, say primitively driven system. So when we think about everything from Wall Street, which, you know, again, has caused a lot of this um, economy of scale to wars, you know, taking over different people's, you know, borders and entering other people's lands and then assuming that that land, um, that is not higher order. That's very primitive. And as a society, if we're going to evolve with people being able to have the higher order thinking um, to be prevailing, then we have to all understand that everyone deserves, everyone deserves food, clothing, and shelter. Everyone deserves what Abraham Maslow said, safety and security. Mm. Everyone deserves um, love, belonging, and sense of community. And everyone deserves meaning and purpose. So if you look at what Maslow considered a hierarchy of needs of humans, this is actually a hierarchy of needs of everything on the planet. Okay. Because, and I'm talking about all animals, all plants, you know, everything needs food, not necessarily clothing, right? Because they, the warm fuzzy things have their own clothing, mm. but safety and security, well, shelter certainly, but safety and security, love, belonging, sense of community and meaning and purpose. Now, a lot of us have lost all of those things. And because of war and because of these primitive drives, we've lost 
you know, like shelter. We've lost being able to give people food because of the climate crisis. Um, we've lost safety and security within our own communities because we've just overfilled the communities with people and things that are not safe. So when you think of, we're not even, we're not even doing that for our own selves, much less the animals on the planet, right? Because you think about the animals, my goodness, like our ecosystems are no longer safe for them. Mm. You know, they're being driven out of certain areas. They don't have the resources they need. So we're not even doing a good job, you know, for our own species, much much less anybody else with this primitive drive that we have. Um, yeah, that's I mean, a, yeah, no, that's a good point. So I'm kind of, I'm feeling, I'm situating myself within the words that you're using. So correct me if I'm wrong, right? So when you're talking about higher order, what we're really talking about, if we use Maslow as an example, although I want to say something about that as well, but at the at the tip of his pyramid, right, which he never created, but it was created after his work, is this idea of self-actualization. So when we're talking about self-actualization, is that what you are now defining as a higher order way of being? Is that correct? So yes, because I do believe... Um, Dr. King, that our society, any society, our global community could all, everyone achieve self-actualization if everyone in the society has all of Maslow's tenets met. Mm. And yet the problem is that we, we don't all have that. And so what what normally people do is they're driven to just get those things for themselves or their children or their family without really taking a step back and saying that, that the real higher ordered thinking as human animals, meaning we do have the neocortex, is that everyone deserves those basic principles, you know, that Maslow espoused. I, I could show you in our brain, I have, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen like a cop, you know, one of these little copies of the brain, but I can show you in there how all of this relates, you know, to the, the structures of the brain and then how all the psychologists in the past and psychiatrists have talked about um, these things in terms of you know, as though humans are better than the lesser animals. Mm. And we're only, let's say, in some way better if we do consider these higher order ways of of thinking and of being and doing rather than um, these primitive drives. So I was thinking that as you were saying that, then to reframe what I originally said based on the way that you're using the terminology. That means, at least from my perspective, that there are a group of people that have used their intellect, right, rather than saying higher order thinking or self-actualization. They've right. used their intellect in order to manipulate these primitive drives, right? Yeah. So does, does that make sense? Does that resonate with what you're saying? Yes, exactly. So they they are driven by these primitive drives to have more, to to make more, you know, whether it be money or buildings or factories, you know, um, 
And they, they've used those drives because they are human. So it's, it's from an intellectual perspective that they then manipulate other people into thinking they have to have all these things and that we have to have a society with more rather than simplifying it and saying, you know, what, what does everyone really need? And are we meeting everyone's needs? If you're going to have all this excess, Mm. then is everyone, you know, is everyone, um, are everyone on the planet, you know, uh, taken care of is everyone on the planet taken care of. Yeah. So no, that, that makes sense. So as you were saying that, you know, we need to also just remember that these people are really smart, right? So you can be extremely smart, but have no self-actualization because as you're saying, that's, that's a higher order. What I wanted to just bring into the discussion, which oftentimes I feel when we talk about Maslow, and I don't think this disqualifies what he, what he put forward because it definitely, it doesn't, but a lot of people don't know that prior to Maslow writing up his thesis and putting his theory together, that he spent a considerable amount of time with the Blackfoot tribe. And what he noticed, and I find this fascinating because he did not include this in his thesis. We can talk about why that might be. But what he found in that society, in that culture, they had an inverse of the triangle, meaning that self-actualization came first, which I feel speaks to what you're saying, right? Because if that was our starting point, if we start from self-actualization, not something that, okay, we got to do all these things first, and then we finally get there. What happens if we reverse it and we start with self-actualization first? How would that change our society? And in Maslow's own writings and his own words, he said it was amazing and phenomenal. I'm wondering why he left that out. Like, why did he not rewrite his thesis? Knowing what he knew, why did he not rewrite it? To be honest, and I don't know, this is just speculation. I could see why he wouldn't, because I don't think that that would have been accepted. If we talk about the dominant worldview, the way that his pyramid is perfectly fits nicely into the worldview. Let's get all these things first, because in those first things justify things like greed, competition, survival of the fittest and so forth. Right. And accumulation of wealth and materialism to finally somewhere down the road, we'll get to self-actualization. Right. So that sells better in the dominant worldview. But what we are talking about is going to be hard to sell because this is not something you gain. It's something you have to embody. And it's a sense of being. And considering that this world dominant worldview is so, in, you know, all encompassing and just we've all kind of like swimming in it. It's like, does a fish in water know that it's in water, right? Most of us don't, know, don't even know we're in this anymore. We just take it for granted. If you come in and you say, well, actually, you know, the way out of this, the way to get out of these problems is actually to reverse Maslow's needs, let's start with self-actualization. That's a hard sell when, and rightfully so, when all your concern is you need to feed your family. You know, you need to make enough money today to get through. And that's the thing. We've all become what I call wage slaves, right? right? It's like, what do you, you you can, you can decide to opt out, but then you're homeless. But even if you're homeless, if you don't have the skills to survive in the wilderness, you're going to be sitting on a street corner begging for what? For money. 
So we're back to square one again, right? Regardless if you're on the street corner or you somebody has a job, you still have to earn this this money. And the last thing that's going to come to you and be in your in the front of your mind is going to be, yeah, I need to self-actualize, right? Well, so so yeah, it's so important what you're saying. Um, the first time that I conceptualized this, what I'm sharing with you was mm. as I was giving a talk in um Elitus, Lithuania, uh, at a sex trafficking, huge, you know, uh, topic over there, um, kind of the whole community had come together, the mayor, everyone mm -hmm. to talk about sex trafficking. I happen to work with kids who, uh, a lot of them never even think about Maslow's hierarchy because they're in, um, orphanages. And when they get let out at age 15 or 16 with basically $10 and a little brown bag with a couple of changes of clothes, they're picked up and then sex trafficked all over Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then girls do that. The boys end up as drug mules. But why I'm telling you this is that as I was talking, I drew Maslow's uh, pyramid. And then I said, what's important is for a society to have everyone. And so then I circled, I put a huge circle with that little pyramid here, the whole circle, and then many, many pyramids. And then the self-actualization is in the center of this circle with concentric circles and everyone, and a lot of little pizza pies, you know, mm -hmm. cut out. It's like a pizza pie with everybody now self-actualized. So so the reason the Blackfoot tribe, let's say as an example, or any indigenous community, they already start with everyone. So by the time he entered, this wasn't a new community. This, mm. I mean, there are speculations that there have been people on this continent for up to say 130,000 years plus, okay? Which isn't what the prevailing you know, people want you to hear. Um, so having said that he did not step into a community with homeless people. No, that is very true. He, he stepped into a community that was already well-established that already had self-actualized members mm. because everyone had their needs met mm. and everyone was part of this greater community and having meaning and purpose within the community and every person expressed themselves however they did and were actualized because they were part of this amazing you know world so saying that then you know understanding that it's all a continuum it's a little bit like having a rubik's cube that's made out of circles right and and circles upon circles upon circles and that these things he talked about, so food, clothing, and shelter, safety and security, love, belonging, sense of community, meaning, and purpose, and then self-actualization, well, really, it's just a bunch of circles and everybody having, you know, all of those basic tenets, which are part of the circle, met. And then it's it then becomes like a bubble mm -hmm. and like a, you know, a uh, cocoon. And this is how we live, you know, in the world. And um, so I, yeah, I agree with you, but I don't think of it as either 
top down or bottom up, I think of it more as circular, which as you know, that is more the indigenous way of looking at the world Mm -hmm. and not as linear, um, which we're now finding in quantum physics is actually more of the way we should be thinking about even time. Um, So that's powerful what you just said. And I think that that two things there that stood out for me, which I think is really important. Absolutely right. So the Blackfoot tribe, all needs were already met, at least the the needs, the basic needs, the survival needs, right? So then that opens up that opportunity to have a starting point from self-actualization. What I like is I like this idea of the circles. And I think that in itself, the fact that whoever, I mean, I can't remember who the guys were, and I know it wasn't Maslow, but whoever originally came up with that triangle, right? And the whole idea of hierarchy of needs gives people a perception that, oh, it has to be a a step-by-step process, right? And that's how most people read it, unfortunately. And we know that in the business world, that's how it's often been done as well. But it's wrong. And actually, it would have been far better to have drawn it or have, have, have had this diagram the way that you've actually described it, right? Because that makes a whole lot more sense. But I can see how people take it as it is. But then again, coming back to this whole idea of this dominant worldview and people with nefarious reasons for doing things, that fits their narrative, right? So they can say, well, look, forget about the self-actualization part. Listen, we need to get this first. So that means in order for you to get this, you're going to have to outdo everybody. It's survival of the fittest, right? right? And so we've got all of these kind of dominant perspectives, worldviews that ultimately then create this massive problem that we now find ourselves in. Yeah, even, even I recently heard... Um someone talking about and and actually it was dr stephen greer who's Mm. done a lot of uh he's a little bit controversial but the ufo guy exactly (laughs) he's a he's an emergency medicine physician he's you know it says a lot though about like climate crisis and about how we're living our world um backwards and so many things but um he had talked about the whole um problem of um, uh, patents, patents. So new ideas, they get sequestered if someone doesn't believe that it fits into our worldview, right? So if you think all the way back to Tesla, who came up with this idea of um, not having to charge for energy, it's kind of back in the day, nobody would have charged for water, Right. Mm. So like when we started paying for water, do you remember that? Like, I do remember when we started to have to pay for water and I was like, whoa, now I have a well now. So there's no difficulty with that. But, um, you know, Dr. Greer had mentioned that with patents, you know, if you um, if people would just when they come up with ideas, just put it out there and just don't worry so much about who's going to get it, you know, or look, this is not a competition. (laughs) This is like, we are in here for survival right now. Like, do people, are people really aware of like what we're in the middle of uh, in this whole climate crisis and how we got here? Like, you know, um, so not making any judgments about the people who don't care, right? Like, 
maybe they have too much going on in their own lives and they can't look up, you know, like the movie said, look up, you know, an asteroid is coming. Um, you know, but having said that, when we have new ideas, like you and your partner, you know, have new ideas and you are trying to kind of find out what other ideas people have. I think we need to be sharing our ideas in the way that you are, even though it's really hard to do that. And even though it's really hard to break away from this idea of you're going to make a million off this, you know, patent. So just keep it to yourself until you can get it further along. What they don't realize is it may never see the light of day. And there are people that have just like Tesla himself died before ever seeing their patents come to fruition because they're so worried about other people taking it. Mm. Um, but that goes back to this whole, you know, concept of the rooster and the pecking order of the hens of the coop. They're trying to keep everything to themselves. They're trying to keep all their belongings and all their, you know, um, I don't know the things they value and they own and, and the property and the intellectual property. It's almost like, look, right now we're in this climate climate crisis. We need to band together and like everybody put their ideas out there about how we can change this problem and how we can get out of Mother Nature's way and let her do what she needs to do to heal mm. from the corruption and from the greed and the uh, waste and you know, overproduction and accumulation of mass amounts of garbage that we will never, you know, be able to decompose. Um, these are all, you know, I always, you know, tweet back when I did use Twitter, I don't use it anymore because it's not called that anymore. And I don't want to use it exactly. We're not going to say what it is. Right. But um, now I just put it out on LinkedIn that um, we need to get out of mother nature's way and let her do her job to heal. Mm. And we need to stop creating, um, you know, problems that will never be solved. And then thinking that we're going to leave this world to other people to solve it. Cause there is no planet B there is no planet B. Mm. Frank. I see Frank's itching to say something. I can see it. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> just after reading your profile and knowing that you're you're a physician, and I'm really curious to hear how all these large-scale background processes are affecting the human body and what you are seeing in human health these days. For example, I read a piece just recently about fatty liver disease showing up in children now, which has basically never happened to before. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's diabetes, it's everything and the general malaise of young people. Um, what are you seeing? Well, I appreciate you um, asking that. And I am a psychiatrist. I am board certified child, adolescent and adult. My undergrad is in microbiology magna cum laude, NC State School of Agriculture and Life Science. So you can appreciate, I know something about soil health. Mm -hmm. um, 
I have a master of public health and health policy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I did my doctorate of medicine and then Georgetown for psychiatry training and then child psychiatry children's national. So 28 years of education. I never did preschool or kindergarten. So I always tell my patients they're ahead of me already. Um, but having said that, I so you had mentioned fatty liver. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to say gut microbiome. Um, what we know about our own gut health, which is really our first brain, um, because evolutionarily speaking, you know, worms and lesser, you know, animals like that have, uh, they do not have the second brain, which is here. Um, this one is an extension of the nervous system, which began deeper. Okay. But um, our gut brain has um, regulatory mechanisms that really control almost everything in our body. So when you think about the connection between mental health and physical health, it really begins in the gut. And that's because 90% of our serotonin and 50% of our dopamine is modulated by our gut microbes the 10,000 species of gut microbes, over 300 trillion of these little boogers that talk to our enterochromaffin cells that line our gut. So then you say, well, how is that related to soil health, which you just mentioned? Well, that's because we totally depleted our natural soil health by bringing over the spent munitions from World War I and creating herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and making that go into the soil all over what's then became the Dust Bowl and other farming communities. I, I happened to have worked for Sibagagi Corporation during my undergraduate years Uh, which is a chemical company just for six months to uh, make money because I paid for my own education. And, um, you know, we were taking chemicals off the chemist bench to send out all over the country to these farmers to test. And what you're talking about then is a whole system of food production in our country that's now been um, in a way tainted by chemicals that kill the very microbes in your gut that is helping with everything from inflammatory modulation, right, to production of neuroendocrine hormones, um, your neurotransmitters, so many things. So, so getting back to soil health, what we do here at Dreamcatcher Meadows, it's my farm here in Potomac, Maryland, we actually have never used uh, any pesticides, herbicides, or, you know, fungicides, any type of fertilizers. We, we have our goat poo uh, registered with the state as a soil conditioner and uh, mankind from man's earliest, you know, venturings out into the world would go onto these barren landscapes of little islands and take their two little goats And they would have their goats pooping all over the place in the little pellets, which then help soil production. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we actually evolved over the last 10,000 years with goats, believe it or not. And remember back in the day, mankind lived with their goats uh, and their little animals. Like it could be chickens or whatever. They would build their huts and, you know, they kind of lived at, as one with them. And the reason we can actually eat grains, believe it or not, and grasses is because we incorporated some of their microbiome into our gut. So then you say, well, goats and gut health, how does that have to do with anything? Well, how, how many children do you think you, you were talking about obesity and children and, you know, fatty liver, how many children do you think have ever walked through a pasture and a forest with 15 hand-raised goats, two ponies and an Irish draft horse? And then petted the tummy of a pig, a 200-pound rescued cuncun pig who, um, you know, rolls over and grunts when you massage his legs. Children are not being given opportunities in nature anymore. There are books written like Last Child in the Woods, uh, you know, the whole problem of nature deficit disorder. There are physicians. There's one physician here in, in Washington, D.C., who... Um, prescribes nature for his patients. He's a pediatrician. And I think his, his um, nonprofit is called something like nature RX. Um, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the idea that if we can go back into nature, even on your windowsill, if you don't have a ton of space, grow some tomato plants, grow herbs that you don't wash if, if, if it's in clean, you know, soil and you can make your own soil, we do that here. Mm. We use coffee grounds, tea bags, eggshells, paper towels, paper plates, um, any type of, you know, uh, organic material like that. And lemon peels, you know, onion peels, anything that's, you know, the pig will eat, he eats. And people bring, you know, produce left over from Whole Foods and other you know, grocery stores um, that is not fit for human consumption. They bring it. We have volunteers that bring it. Um, and we we have a collaboration with an organization that takes food to homeless shelters and food banks. Uh, and there's huge food waste in our world. You have to think that they throw out a ton of food, you know, every day. I mean, way more than a ton. But um, so what we do is we get the you know, old produce that isn't fit for humans and we feed it to our animals or we put it in our compost. It's mostly fed to the chickens and the the uh, pig. But um, you think about ways like that. Well, what about in your community partnering with, and I'm not saying you per se, but just in general communities partnering and having places where they do in-ground composting like we do. It doesn't take time. It only takes a week in the middle of the summer with good rain, as long as you're keeping it covered so it stays moist to make, to take those, those things that I told you and make really great soil. I'm talking about it is as dark as coffee mm -hmm. and the coffee keeps a little bit acidic. So the, you know, microbes are the right balance. Um, and we can put it out. We, we grew tons of pumpkins this year from pumpkins that we um, had donated last year to feed the animals. Like kids brought in, you know, their leftover decorative pumpkins. And we harvested the seeds every time we went to feed them to the pig. And 
then we planted little plants in little paper cups. Um, you know, we we germinated them and then planted them in cups and then put the cups right in the ground in this manure, you know, enriched uh, compost soil. And some of it, some of those we grew straight in the horse manure. Like literally we put it with the bedding from the goats and just planted the little plants in it. And I did have to end up putting a little bit of iron and some baking soda water just to get the pH right. But people can do these things. Look, mm. I'm one person. I've got six and a half acres right here in Potomac, Maryland. I decided when I bought the place and the idea came to me in 2001, but I had to finish residency and fellowship. And then I paid off my student loans, right? It took nine years to pay off my student loans. But um, the idea is that it's not just me that can do this. Where are you putting your money? You know, you're putting it in a 401k that's going to go uh, into, you know, other people's, you know, really big dreams and which is really building bigger factories or more waste or, you know, it's this economy of scale. Are you putting it in, in the land? Are you investing in the land? And we, if each and every person took their one little plot of land and rewilded it, so taking out all the invasives, taking out all of the things that were not here in the very beginning, wherever you live on the planet. Now we do have two emus and those are not native to this countryside, but luckily I can use those instead of, um, you know, uh, having to hire somebody to keep my chickens safe, you know, in the middle of the night, because the emus would take care of that. But um, having said that, yeah, I, I think that we have to go back to how closely we're living with the land and why children are ending up with all these conditions is I believe because they're sedentary, they have this new world of you know, electronics that they're, um, you know, drawn into and they're creating worlds within, you know, that virtual reality instead of going out and creating a world that's better, you know, and it, it numbs them out. It, 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 you know, the parents say, oh, it calms them down to do that. Well, yeah, because they're kind of checking out, but they're not making new neurochemicals right? They're, they're, because it's a virtual reality. So they're using up all their dopamine. They're using up all their, you know, um, serotonin, norepinephrine, and their bodies aren't doing anything physically to then make new of those chemicals. So we wonder why kids are depressed. Why are they demoralized? Why are they just sluggish? Well, they have a lot of inflammatory processes going on, and anxiety itself, which a lot of it's being driven by our, you know, uh, the climate crisis in this population of kids, um, the anxiety causes inflammation in the brain and they're not sleeping well, right? The children aren't sleeping well. They're eating terrible diets. I mean, we're hearing about everything from McDonald's having, you know, um, been, specifically uh, making these patties, these burgers, which McDonald's is all over the, the world now, um, that has harmful chemicals in it. Our water supply has microplastics, right? You know about that. Babies are born with microplastics. Um, so when you think about where is all this coming from? Well, remember, 
fossil fuels, the byproduct of fossil fuels is neurotoxins. These are solvents that then get into, you know, our water, our systems, you know, go into our bodies and our bodies are responding to, you know, environmental estrogens in a lot of cases is what they are. They're, um, you know, chemical modulators in the body. And um, so that's why one health is so important. This idea of hashtag one health, all one word. If you go and look it up, the one health initiative is really run by a pharmaceutical company, I think, trying to capitalize on this idea. But it's the idea that our human health is inextricably linked to environmental health. Mm. And that's the bottom line. And we are connected to everything else on the planet. You know, the water, the soil, the air we breathe, everything is interconnected with our health. Susan, what I wanted to do, and Frank, if you've got another question, I'll give you a chance. But I just want to, I want to yeah. kind of like focus a little bit just on the gut biome because I think this is really important. Yeah. I mean, I know about it. I think it's becoming more known. People are starting to hear that more. What advice would you give to somebody? Let's say they're living in the middle of a city, mm-hmm. and they want to improve their gut biome. You already said, like, I think that's a great idea. Like, you know, start your own little, you know garden inside yeah like put a little box in the window grow some tomatoes something like that but what else could somebody do to improve their their gut biome number one stop drinking any alcohol Mm. okay zero alcohol let me explain that and 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 limit your sugar outside of maybe some honey in your tea um but i'm going to start with alcohol alcohol itself is a solvent so alcohol is going to kill your gut microbiome. If Okay, don't believe me. Just look, Take do not believe anything I say, okay? Take a little bit of alcohol and, and I'm talking about 70 proof, okay? Or whatever it is that's in your bottle and dilute it in some water. Do a one-to-one dilution. Take the straight stuff and put it on a plant, And then the one-to-one dilution and then take some bleach and put, you know, 10 cc's on each plant. And every day you look at it and and then do one with just plain water. And this was an experiment I did with my daughter in um, second grade. And, you know, the the, uh, alcohol, the bleach only killed all the plants in um, one day. The alcohol only killed it in two days. And we did nine different plants. I did a whole experiment with her. Remember, I'm a really a scientist by heart. Uh, worked four and a half years in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the the alcohol and the bleach, both those, you know, all the plants, all nine that were got it um, dead within two days. The one-to-one dilution, four days. And um, then the... Um, the water only plants were still alive in uh, 30 days. Okay. So what that tells you, alcohol kills and and it it actually kills the germinal centers of seeds. So you can do the same dilutions and, and try to germinate seeds in them. And even after washing the seeds, 
and putting them on a paper towel with only water. Um, whereas seeds that were never exposed to the alcohol will germinate seeds that were exposed to alcohol will not germinate. Okay. So if we can, if we can start with that one, um, I would say, you know, why do you need alcohol? All right. And I know I get it. I'm a teetotaler. It's really hard to live in our society that way. We are a whole society going all the way back to Gobekli Tepe, which is the first known civilization with huge structures built, was built 10,000 years ago or so because they wanted to uh, grow grain in massive amounts. Okay. And uh, what was the grain used for? It was used to make alcohol. <laughs> so our whole society, our whole culture in at least, you know, the European sense, um, Mediterranean was built based on alcohol. Okay. So number one, don't drink any alcohol. Try that for three months. See how your gut feels. Uh, number two, you do need um, to have water every day. So there's there's this little acronym I use, S-N-O-W-E, and it's sleep, nutrition, oxygen, that's the breath, water, and exercise. Uh, people don't realize the value of these very basic things, um, you know, in your health in general. But if you can think about your gut health, the gut health is connected to everything else. You need water because the microbes in your gut need the water to be able to, you know, reproduce and, you know, the, the food needs um, to have water just so that it doesn't, everything doesn't get all clumped together because that's not a very good way to flush out your system. Um, so thinking about that and then nutritionally, we do need um, uh, fiber. You need fiber in your diet. So an apple every day, they say, keeps the doctor away. But if you eat a really big apple, that's enough fiber for your one day, right? And people will say, well, what about melons? And what about these other things? Well, whatever you like is good. And the idea with nutrition and your gut microbiome is if you only add like one new thing every week, let's say you're not a person that likes to eat a lot of vegetables. Well, just add one new thing every week until you're used to eating a lot of different things, because it's actually the vegetables and the fruits that are going to be um, proponents of your microbiome, right? And um, it's not meats. It's not dairy. Now, a lot of these probiotics, remember how people are talking mm. about, oh, all these probiotics. Well, they usually have about 12 to 15 strains of bacteria in them. Now, remember, I told you we have over 10,000 species in our gut. The problem is then you're going to be overpopulating. Let's say you take that one pill every day. It's got like 10, what it, they usually say, 10 billion, you know, count or something in it. Well, 10 billion of what, six to 12 strains? Well, how's that helpful when we're talking about, you know, 10,000 species? The other thing is sugar. Remember how I mentioned about sugar? So sugar, the problem with sugar in your gut microbiome is that you overproduce yeast. Okay. Because the yeast, remember, yeast ferment things, mm. right? And they use yeast to make beer and all these different kinds of alcohol. 
Um, well, and I know everybody's talking about kombucha. Well, maybe kombucha works for Southeast Asians who have been doing it for eons, right? Because their gut microbiome is used to it. Um, I'm not a proponent and I'm not a proponent of, of, uh, these, you know, again, you go back to who, who says the, um, probiotics are useful. Somebody trying to make money. We got to be honest, right? It, they're marketing, they're having fancy labels, they're packaging it. They've got all this business associated with it, but really the bottom line is, um, you know, those things aren't helpful. And then the sugars cause you to produce yeast, which then overpopulates, it overruns your natural flora and you become sluggish because the yeast are fermenting the sugars and the very simple carbohydrates into what? What do you think they're fermenting it into? Alcohols. Alcohols. So then people are walking around sluggish. They don't feel like doing anything. They have a hard time getting up in the morning. It makes them feel like they're a little bit hungover. Well, why is that? Because their yeast are in their body going, and they literally do this. And I, I talk to the kids in my practice and I tell them this. The little yeast are talking to your whole system, telling your system to feed them, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like if you have a healthy gut microbiome, you're your gut microbiome is going to kind of tell you what you should be eating. And you're going to feel like eating those things because it makes your gut microbiome feel healthy. So the, the GI guys who are like totally into the gut microbiome. And as you can see, I'm not one of those that's not into it, but I'm just not a GI person. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, The GI guys will say, it's kind of like we're, this, the spaceship and the little, um, you know, microbes are the aliens that are, uh, you know, driving us around. Mm. (laughs) And I don't really look at it that way. I say, Hey, it's like a, um, it's, um, ah, I'm losing the word, but it's, it's a symbiosis. It's symbiosis. We're in a symbiotic relationship with our little microbes and we've evolved with them and um, we we have the same microbes in our gut, believe it or not, that we're born with, that we're populated with when we come out the vaginal tract. And it's it's a founder effect. If you've ever heard of that in biology, it's that we, you know, we have all the microbes we're born with and we pretty much keep those for our lifetime. And those are the microbes we we would be the healthiest with. Right. Mm. Um, but if, if you do you have a dog, Dr. King, I have a cat, a cat. OK, <laughs> if, if you look at your cat's microbiome and and you compare that to yours, people. So they've done this. This is amazing. They can tell whose pet is whose pet based on the microbiome. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's because incredible. We live around them. We're not eating their poo. Right. <laughs> But we we have the same access to other microbes that they do. Mm. So um, we are our environment. We are our environment, right? So that's why environmental health is so important to, to the gut microbiome. That's amazing. Frank, you got one question. Sorry, man, we're running over time. I, I had a big question and that <clears throat> involves the state of the medical system itself. 
And I'm really, and this, we, I'm sure we don't have time for this because it, this is a big topic, but um, doctors are committing suicide at very high rates. Nurses are overworked and very unhappy. And uh, in a related field, teachers are really unhappy as well. Why is it that we've created these systems where the, the goal is to take care of the human animal and the people who are tasked with that are just incredibly unhappy? So we probably need a whole conference on this, but um, I, I think, yeah, that's that, my curiosity. Yeah. I think it really deserves another chat. Mm. Um, but I would say that um, it goes back to what Dr. King said in the very beginning, which is corporate greed. Okay. As these corporations have taken over the medical system, or it, let's say it's it's not privatized, but it's a, a national system. The cutbacks due to, again, economy of scale, um, there more is needed. And we're creating this huge healthcare system because people's health is poor and people's health is poor because why? Why do you think? Because we don't have good environmental health in my view. Okay. Mm. And so... Um, I think doctors are overworked because they're being given tasks that are unrealistic and they're being given patients that are sicker and sicker and sicker. These aren't people who live on a farm and get up every day at, you know, whatever time they do to take care of their animals and then go on and do their daily work and then go back and take care of the animals. These are not people like me. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, I know I, I live a privileged life being able to, to live very close to the earth like I do. We're talking about doctors who never see the light of day sometimes because they're up so early in the morning. They, they, you know, are still at work by the time, you know, the sun goes down. Um, you know, their health is compromised because of, you know, their Hippocratic oath that they've given. And, you know, nurses are in under, they're underpaid, they're undervalued as are teachers. Whereas we in our society choose to give these basketball players and these, you know, uh, soccer players and these really people who are just playing a game, uh, you know, these gladiator games, uh, we choose to give them more value in our society than the people who are actually doing really important work for our society, like our teachers and our doctors and our nurses and our healthcare professionals. So, um, yeah, I think it deserves another look, but I, I love what you're doing. Okay. I am so enamored with both of your work. I'm so grateful that you gave me this opportunity to chat with you. Um, you, you could feel, you know, the connection, right. Yeah. Between what we do, even though we just briefly saw each other's stuff on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I love like, it. I, it was a great, it was a great, great conversation, Susan. We have to absolutely have you on again, and then we can go deeper and explore. Uh, but we totally want to be respectful of your time. So we appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, let's do it again for sure. Yeah, thank you. Well, take good care. Very nice to talk with both of you. Thank you, Susan. Have a good so day. Much. You All too. Right. Cheers. Hey, another one. In that the was books. that was good, right? I mean, some really interesting stuff, and uh, 
yeah, lots lots of food for thought, especially around the the gut biome. And obviously, you know that I know that. But uh, you know, again, it's just the more you talk about these things, the more you come to the realization of how important it actually is. Right. Right. So I think for sure, let's have her on again. Let's let's talk to her. Wow. Okay. Yeah, sorry, man. I kind of hogged the conversation because. Oh no, I, you know, just that a... was that was great. I I had a couple of questions and that I'm content. So that's yeah. That's... So whatever questions you don't get to ask, right? You're just gonna just tell me for the next one, and we'll, we'll <laughs> slot it in. And when we have it back in, bam. You know, I think we're getting to the point. Like as we're doing all of these amazing talks with people, at some point it would be probably a really good idea to set up a summit have them back on, share their insights, share their expertise so that we can, you know, make that available to a much wider audience. And then obviously they in themselves can talk to the people that they talk to and follow the, their followers and bring them into the fold. But uh, it's really nice that she gave us kudos, which is, which is awesome because sometimes you, you think you're doing this and it's just kind of like disappearing into the ether and you sometimes question why are you doing this why are you spending time doing this because you know we don't make anything off doing this but it's uh it's a service right and uh hopefully you know as she said just takes that one person to make a change and somebody listening to this episode or one of the other episodes that might just be the episode that changes then and that would be right. amazing hey dr king yeah thank you for joining myself and frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal find out more about our work you can visit frank at exuberantanimal.com for coaching with me gear and to find out more about the human animal project as well as my retreats go to drrodneyking.com until next time be wild be free <laughs>